Welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your guest host, John Young. Today, it's my pleasure to sit down with Chelsea Shields. Chelsea, uh, you have a background in uh, cultural medicine. Can you tell us uh, about yourself and your educational background? Sure. Um, I'll go tell you the brief version. So in college, in undergraduate, I did um, anthropology and African studies, and I led some study abroads to West Africa. And while I was there, I became really good friends with some healers, some uh, indigenous healers, some people would call witch doctors or fetish priests. And it was really fascinating to be able to be invited to their ceremonies and to be able to watch and be kind of a trusted um friend, I watched some of them get, you know, go from apprentice to a a full-fledged healer over the course of the 10 years that I've gone back and forth to Africa. So um, after that, I applied to graduate school and I got an MA and I'm finishing two PhDs at Boston University. So one of them was in cultural anthropology, which is what I started in. And also I did a degree, a graduate certificate in African studies. So most of my cultural healing aspect has been done in the African continent, though a lot of the readings for medical anthropology have been, you know, across the world, global, global cultural healing. Um, so I started out in cultural anthropology, which is basically studying the religion, the culture, the people, the meaning systems, um, how a religious ritual could alter someone's perception about their social standing um, or status, those kind of assessments and theories. And um, after doing that for a couple of years, um, I realized that here I was writing all these papers about how these religious rituals alter someone's um, sense of social, you know, embeddedness or something. And my healers were saying, no, we heal. We're healing the yeah. body. And I was kind of being, um, you know, ethnocentric in my, in my, in, you know, me looking at their healing from a perspective that had nothing to do with the body. And so I actually went back to school and did all of the coursework and comprehensive exams, um, for biological anthropology as well. And that's where we get into the evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, how the body evolved, why it evolved that way. Um, a lot of the theory behind that. And so I combined them in my dissertation, which is, of course, just ginormous because it's these two different fields and I'm trying to put everything together and into it's it's about the evolution and elicitation of the placebo effect. So why have our bodies evolved to be manipulable by a social interaction? And how does that happen? Just the, the neurobiology of it. And then what does that look like across the world? And so I focus on Africa, but really it's getting at this subject of kind of the concept of the placebo. And we can get into that more later. Um, and, and looking at it from a really long lens through evolutionary history. Fascinating. Uh, can you tell us a little more about the placebo effect, what it is and how you feel it's something that applies to our study of cultural anthropology and how placebo may be used in Africa. Sure. So there's there's two parts of that. The first part is, well, let's, I can tell you the history of the placebo, like what it is. Yeah. The second part is there's a whole colloquial understanding of what the placebo is. So if I were to do a podcast that said, you know, placebo in African medicine, I would offend so many people because the perception would be, oh, this stuff doesn't work. It's just in my head. It's just a hoax. The, I, the concept of the placebo has come to be known in wide circles for underlay conditions as this thing that's in your head that's made up that doesn't really work, right? And that's actually the yes. exact opposite of the definition. It's this really fascinating concept that the opposite definition is what it's con- like the what people connote it means when its real denotation means that something that is inert causes an effect. 
So let me rephrase that in a way that maybe sounds simpler. So a placebo is something that has no effect, without effect, okay? okay. And so if I give some, like a sugar pill. So if I give you a sugar pill, there should be no, there's no active biochemical um, reaction that I should see developing by giving you a sugar pill, right? That's uh-huh. what a placebo is. is. It means no effect, right? Right. But for someone, for me to hand you, John, a placebo and to tell you something about that placebo and to then measure the effect that it has on your body, I'm now seeing an effect of something that by definition has no effect. And so that's what the placebo response is or the placebo effect is. This idea that you can alter physiological processes and states by even biochemical uh, reactions based on a social trigger, an expectation, um, based on manipulating someone's uh, psychology. And that you, you can physiologically see that, that alteration. And so that's why people are so confused about the placebo is, you're right, it means nothing. But a ritual can literally have as big of a biological effect, if we're just measuring degree of change, as a lot of active medication. And so that's where it gets really tricky is people want to go from, from something of, oh, okay, so a placebo is something that does something, but just the trigger is inert, okay? Or the trigger is social instead of biochemical. Um, but, you know, people tend to take this, this really complicated premise and immediately apply it to really complex social and cultural and, you know, pharmacological and political economic situations. So mm-hmm. they'll immediately jump from, hey, I just gave you like the smallest seed of what a placebo is. And you now want to ask me the question, hey, so is gluten-free diets real? Or, or does GNC actually sell pills that work or does home you know homeopathy work so there is so much in between understanding the concept that our bodies have the ability to be manipulable outside of a physio- like a physical or material alteration or trigger to jumping all the way to these really complex systems of why certain things work and certain things don't and where and how and i think that what's exciting about this podcast is we can get a little bit more into the weeds, a little bit more into the middle instead of jumping all the way out. And that's, and that's, of course, coming from my cultural anthropology background, right? Where yeah. I want to talk about how the color of a pill has effect, the brand of the pill, the name of the pill. If your aunt and uncle or brother or mom has said something about that pill, your expectations for the last 30 years have an effect. So as an anthropologist studying this stuff, we're looking at it from the perspective that social interactions are not inert. And expectations of how something's going to play out is not inert. And none of these social and psycho- psychological behaviors are what we'll probably call for the rest of the podcast psychosocial okay. uh, variables. None of those things is inert. So, so each of those has the ability to affect you, to alter your physiological state, your emotional state, right? Your psychological state. And all of those things are combined. If I'm feeling an emotion, I'm also experiencing a physiological change. I'm having different hormones rushing through my body, right? If I'm feeling stressed, my body alters in all these different ways. And so all of those things are combined and, and it's really complicated. And so I just want to just have this big caveat at the beginning. I'm sorry if I'm talking too much, but of just saying, these things are, you know, inordinately complicated and I can talk you through one tiny thread of all of that. Um, and so just be wary when you jump all the way to a conclusion at the end of the line. Right. Right. Well, thank you very much for that. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know personally I, I went through a great, uh, 
length of time in my life where my view of the placebo effect was, I guess, your basic college graduate level, where you feel that now that you know about this concept and how it's factored out of our, our good scientific studies, yeah, I had a little trump card in my pocket for anything I didn't like to, to hear with regard to uh, folk medicine or, or ideas that I felt were, were unscientific. And, you know, looking back on that, I do kind of feel a little bit of uh, guilt, perhaps, that I was a little too unfair and too dismissive of it. Um, but one of the things I've been... Oh, go, Can go I ahead. just comment on that for a second? I think sure. that, um, I, I think we all, I even face this, this boundary, right? This balance. Well, you don't want to fall too far on the one side. And, um, I do get in debates with people and I tend to defend the placebo just because I'm like, it's so underrepresented in the medical sciences. But then there's circles where the placebo is so, um, represented that the science isn't being represented. So it is this balance, right? And so what I've seen is, over the course of the years through the history of medicine, the placebo has been seen as the biggest nuisance in medicine, right? It's the thing yeah. that costs millions of dollars that why am I giving, running this medical trial of drugs as strong as Vicodin, right? Uh-huh. And still people are getting better with nothing. It is the bane of any like trialist life is this, this thing that is so powerful, especially when we get into what most first world people are dealing with, which is more um, psychotropic drugs, then those have an enormous placebo effect. So um, it is this problematic thing. And so how it's been treated in the medical sciences often is it's really just a tool or a method used to weed out the biochemically effective or active ingredients and, and to what degree. That it's really been just a methodological tool to test drugs. That's how the placebo has been implemented into science to figure out control trials, to figure out double blinds, to to kind of figure out how we can get back to the most base scientific, um, no mumbo jumbo, no, you know, we want to know every pathology, every hormone, we want to get down to just the mi most minute interaction. And the placebo has helped us do that. It's a really good tool for us to kind of understand how the body works in all of these different ways. Um, but the placebo itself has not been studied very often. So I've been working with um, Ted Kapjuk. He's on my committee. He runs the Harvard uh, Program in Placebo Studies at Beth Israel Hospital in Massachusetts. Um, and there's another big research lab in Italy by Fabrizio Benedetti. And those are probably the most premier placebo researchers out there. And it's quite a small group that actually studies the the um, what other doctors throw away, what other people throw in the trash bin, right? These people... Mm -hmm. These people are defunct because they responded to a placebo. So let's just ignore them. And these other researchers are like, hey, wait, isn't that really fascinating that they responded to this without the side effects of all these drugs? Let's study that. And that's a more um, recent field. But one of the reasons why there's such, um, not I wouldn't say hatred, I would say just opposition to placebo research is, these doctors see, by and large, and we're talking for hundreds of years, charlatans and quack doctors and people, you know, think about new age spiritual um, healings, think about, you know, more more uh, naturopathic, homeopathic medicines. And not all of those, I'm not suggesting that any of those are bad. I'm just saying from a, from a medical researcher perspective, you see this enormous search in alternative and complementary medicines that you're thinking... Well, they don't have to go under FDA approval. They don't have to be tested to make sure they're safe. They don't have to have yeah. 
degrees of efficacy, right? They don't have standards and regulations of you can't sell someone a product unless it works better than, than nothing, right? And so it, it's one of those things where some people will take these concepts I'm talking about and, and you know, make millions of dollars off a drug that, you know, may or may not work. And they'll, you know, can manipulate people that are very vulnerable in health situations. And if you kind of see how the placebo has been manipulated by things as widespread as, you know, charlatans and doctors all the way over to kind of like the book, The Secret, right? Mm-hmm. Then you kind of understand why people would be um, antagonistic toward anyone who claims to like talk about the power of the placebo, right? So it's this really fine balance between we want a scientific investigation of the placebo that takes it seriously and legitimizes what it can do, but it's honest about what it can't do. Yeah, so in modern Western medicine, I, I get the feeling that the placebo effect is unethical to use. How do you see perhaps that placebo effect might be integrated with modern medicine? And is it done to some degree now and in the future? How might that improve? Right. Uh, there's a great quote, and I wish I had it in front of me, but I don't have it right in front of me right now. It would take me a minute to find um, by Ted Captain, where he says, you know, you have this Hippocratic Oath as doctors, which is that, you know, you do no harm. Mm-hmm. But what if you find out that there's this amazing medicine on the market and you just choose not to give it to your patient? Isn't that unethical? And so he approaches this this melding between placebo studies and, and, and you know, allopathic biomedicine as we need to start integrating that. If you as a doctor understand that these five steps that you can take, and some of them are like we talked about, right? Behavioral, cultural, psychological, such as looking the patient in the eye, talking to them for longer than 30 seconds, giving them a positive expectation of care, etc. cetera. Um, all of those things will have a science statistically proven beneficial outcome of positive treatment on your patient. So isn't it ethically wrong to not do that? And that's the question placebo researchers are asking today. Um, on the flip side is, is it okay to lie to a patient if you think that it's going to improve them? And with all of the medical um, bioethics problems we've had in our history, think of Tuskegee on, um, and, and especially if we get into bioethics problems we've had um, cross-culturally, it makes sense why honesty and, and, and informed consent is such a preeminence in the medical establishment, right? No one would want to change that. However, it's this quandary of if I tell a patient that this if I if I upsell basically this product if I say if I have absolute confidence if I tell you that this pill is so powerful it's going to has this high rate if I lie to you basically the mm-hmm. chances of scientifically statistically that you will respond better are enormous and yet I have to lie. And so it becomes this sticky ethical issue. One thing that my group of kind of the next generation of placebo researchers is arguing is, well, instead of lying about the actual pill, let's take placebos and let's take medicine away from the actual um, uh, method of inducement, let's say. So the actual pill, right? And let's expand. So hospitals are built in a way that um, interior designers are are, are, uh, strategically building and designing hospital rooms that increase effectiveness of recovery, right? That in, that make patients um, have increased well-being, feel faster, feel mentally more stable. So they use horizontal lines that make people relaxed instead of vertical lines. They have, you know, if you have a view of nature in your room, you get better 10% faster, you know, those small things like this. 
And yet when you walk in a hospital, no one ethically has to tell you these things. No one has to ethically get your permission of, hey, we designed the, this room to manipulate your body into feeling safer so that it heals faster. Is that okay? Right? Because these are procedural. These are ritual. These are um, building. It's, it's, it's beyond the pill. And so those are the types of things that I'm encouraging people nowadays to use, which are more of the social, the psychosocial elements that we have statistically shown to be beneficial um, to start implementing those more, including things like ritual, because you don't have to ask um, a patient or give, get permission from a patient to alter their procedural, ritual, or sociocultural environment, right? It's not the pill. But you do need permission if you're giving someone a sugar pill and you're telling them it's active. That's a problem. And so that's kind of where the field sits today, which is it's kind of unethical not to give someone the best care you personally can, but let's let's make the bar be not with the active medication. Let's make the bar be with improving the provisions of care and the ritual of medicine. So you're a mother and... Uh, have you used uh, the techniques that you've learned with your own child uh, when she's sick? Um, yes and no. So this is, again, back to that balance, right? Mm-hmm. It depends on the type of injury. And I think that most doctors, and I, I'm, I'm saying, I'm not calling myself a doctor when I say this, but most doctors would agree with me that there are certain, and, and the science agrees with me, that there are certain elements, certain injuries that uh, respond better to placebos than others. So. There are infectious disease, for example. It doesn't respond that quickly to placebos. It has very low rates. Um, something pain, however, pain responds very well to placebos. Mm-hmm. And so dependent on the type of injury my daughter had, you know, if she had a stomach flu, I wouldn't even attempt to be like, you're going to feel better. And, you know, I sometimes say things like what we call positive expectation setting. So your body tends to respond to what it expects will happen. And kids don't have a lot of expectations, right? They haven't had the flu that many times. So I will try to do like positive expectation setting and saying, hey, look, your your flu needs really good rest. And in the morning, you'll feel a little bit better. And it will take a couple of days. And you know, every day, you'll get a little bit better. And I try to set her expectations. So she's... um it's called biofeedback as well. So in the morning, if she does feel even a little bit better, she's like, oh, it's working, right? So then she'll sleep better and drink more water. And so there's ways to do that. But the flu doesn't respond well to placebos, but pain does. And so if my kid, you know, scrapes their leg or falls, I try to do the parent thing, which is don't overreact, right? Don't look at the injury yeah. site. Tell her she'll be just fine, that her body's built to fight off, you know, to, to heal itself and it's so cool. Let's watch the skin recover. And, you know, like I'll try to like, you know, distance, normalize, um, set positive expectations, like all these things I've learned in my, in my training because I know they work on pain. And so that's another thing that needs to be clarified, which is, you know, I'm the biggest proponent of allopathic biomedicine. I think it's, you know, it's done more in the last hundred years. Well, um, allopathic. Biomedicine, that's yeah. the type of medicine we use in the United States. So okay. previous, yeah, sorry, previous, about a hundred years ago, all the different types of medicine were basically being used in the U.S. at the same exact time, right? We were having doctors giving people tapeworms for weight loss pills. We were having, you know, um, the Chamberlain brothers go use forceps to get, you know, uh, babies that weren't coming out and pull them out. But then they were hiding the forceps because they wanted the, basically the patent on this really cool obstetric technology. And so, you know, the history of medicine is rife with, especially in America, all of these competing uh, medical fields. And what happened was 
um, in a big survey. Oh, I forget the name of the guy. I might have to look it up to give it for you. There's a big survey conducted that analyzed all the different types of medicine, all the different types of medical schools, analyzed it, um, really put rigor, rigorous um, measurements for um, basically science. You know, scientific method. Does it work? How often does it work? Let's measure it. What are you doing? Are we just, it's basically the beginning of evidence-based medicine, right? Mm-hmm. In the US, in the United States. And what was eventually chosen as the top scientific evidence-based um, medical, basically, uh, theory was allopathic medicine, right? And this is more the biochemistry, the pills. Um, this is, you know, what we see today and what we call today is biomedicine. And so okay. that's what got chosen. And then we begin to have stricter regulations, right? So, we now have regulations on allopathic medicine. You can't just create a biochemical uh, concoction and sell it on the streets like they do in some countries. We have to actually get that FDA approved. Uh, doctors can't, you know, practice without a license. We have all these regulations to kind of protect patients, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I forgot our train of thought right before we got into allopathic medicine. What were we? What were we talking about? Oh, I um, asked a question about, I guess, using. Uh, placebo effect or the psychosocial um, effects with your, your family, your daughter. Right, yeah. right, right, right. So allopathic medicine, biomedicine has been so phenomenal at treating and eradicating a lot of these infectious diseases, right? Mm-hmm. Look at our, look at America today. No one dies of measles. No one dies of polio. We are, we are just phenomenal and, and we've done so good. And I think people who critique biomedicine forget this. We've been so good at medicine. That the only diseases we have left to treat are those that don't respond well to biomedicine, right? Because we've been yeah, so cancer. good at the other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not great at cancer. We're not great at mental illness. We're not great mm-hmm. at chronic pain. We're not great at these other diseases because they don't respond. It's, there's not as clear of a one-to-one ratio of I have this virus and I can kill it off with this antibiotic. One-to-one, boom, Right. When we are dealing with these other things, what comes into play, and this is where the anthropologist becomes uh, very important in the conversation, is, you know, socioeconomic status, um, environment, where do you live, you know, uh, stress levels, what access to food do you have, what, you know, mental uh, health exposures do you have, what vulnerabilities do you have, you know. So all of these different aspects of your life have a major impact on something like heart disease. So heart disease isn't as simple as take a pill every day and you're done. All these other what we call psychosocial factors, these social determinants of health, they impact heart disease. And so that's why we still have heart disease in our country. And, you know, obesity and diabetes and all of the number one cures in America today, they're, they, you can't just eradicate them with a pill. And so that's what biomedicine struggles with is being able to eradicate these things with the way that they've been so good at other diseases. And here's where something like placebos come in. So I would never send my daughter or a friend or I'd never recommend anyone with a broken arm to go into, let's say, acupuncture, right? Yeah. But I would recommend someone with chronic pain who's tried all of these different things that her doctors recommended and they've tried to follow a good diet and a healthy plan and, you know, they've tried everything their doctors recommended. I would recommend her to go into acupuncture and I would recommend her to try all sorts of things that might get at the root of what of what's causing this because biomedicine still doesn't know. They're still not great at it. And I feel the same way about, you know, mental illness. I feel the same way about obesity, heart disease, diabetes. Sometimes if we handle it with medicine, 
that's not a great, so that's actually not the right tool for that specific disease. And some people have better tools. Yeah, you know, one tool that I see being used a lot, uh, I'm going to guess this is a lot in LDS um, uh, communities, is the, the use of essential oils. And it, it's something that I've both been a, a skeptic of and, you know, something of an enjoyer of. I, I really actually like the smells, and I feel they do a lot of good for me, but I'm really picky on how I use it. Uh, I'll tell my wife, I, I just want to smell it because it makes me feel good when I'm sick. Don't put it on my feet, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, so I have my own way of doing those. But, it, you know, a, a while back, you know, I, I felt as if there was this um, contention between uh, what I saw is what women were mainly doing. I, I had a, I critiqued, uh, the use of essential oils partly because I was very skeptical of multi-level marketing, which often seemed to sell these things. And I, I felt, so that's where I kind of felt it was a sham. Then when I started in kind of enjoying the use of them and also, you know, seeing my wife use them, uh, with our kids, I mean, they enjoy it. I think it actually, you know, does help them feel that they're being treated. Uh, that's the good side of it. But one other concern I had was that, you know, I kind of felt, and you can tell me if this is wrong or not. I'll trust your opinion. Okay. <laughs> but it seemed to me that there was some perhaps envy, you know, of priesthood blessings. And, you know, I was probably a little immature back then when I thought this way, but it still kind of is a question I have. I mean, is there some kind of a, here's the man's way of, you know, using faith for healing and here's the woman's way, or is it not so clear cut? So I, and this is totally different podcast. <laughs> I don't like that distinction based on gender. Yes. Mainly just because I don't see it having anything to do with gender, Yes. but I get what you're saying, which is I have the ability by given to me by my culture of a power to heal. Yes. And a female in my society does not. And this is something that maybe gives her an element of that power to, to kind of empower her to have the ability to heal her children or take control of that situation. So I get what you're saying. I, I, I reject the distinction based on gender just because it doesn't really live outside of, you know, our specific really, you know, um, esoteric cultural setting. So that might not be the case in another culture, right? And mm-hmm. you know, women women might be considered those who have more power to heal or something. So I um I get where you're going and I kind of validate that, huh, maybe in our culture that is in fact kind of why certain women especially are drawn to alternative forms of medicine and certain men are maybe not, right? And that, mm-hmm. I, I could I could see that maybe. I think that could be fascinating. I think one thing that a Heals across across cultures is that one element that improves healing that we would call a placebo, right? Because it's it's not by an, in and of itself um, active, but it has a big effect. It has a placebo effect, which is that if people feel like they have control over the disease or their feelings or their sickness or their ailment and are doing something actively to help it, they do better. Mm-hmm. So so if someone is sick and I have two choices, and my one choice is well sorry, it's just going to take three weeks. You're not going to feel better. That's just the way this illness works. And I have another route, which is, hey, there are these really potent smells that give you immediate biofeedback, right? Because your body will immediately respond to this really strong smell of peppermint or something or orange. Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. And, and so, so you get this immediate biofeedback. It seems potent. It seems effervescent. And I tell you, 
you know, sleep this certain way or bathe this certain way and, you know, it can mitigate pain and it still might take three weeks. And who do you think would have a better experience with that illness? Yeah. The well, people I, with the oils and, and yeah. the people with the oils are going to, are going to, um, attribute all of the efficacy to the oils, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you and I both know the oils didn't do much. It was rather, you know, it still took a couple of weeks, you know, it's still, but they were, they were, the people with the oils would be much better off in, you know, pain, well-being, control, like, you know, than the person that just has to sit around feeling sick. So being active, having control, feeling participatory, having positive expectations that this thing will help and a biofeedback response that gives you proof that that would help. Um, it does a lot, even if those oils are or are not considered quote unquote effective. Yeah. And, you know, this reminds me of, of Jesus asking, uh, you know, the 10 lepers to bathe. And, you know, I think of the, you know, here they are, they're going to do something to have that expectation. You know, is, is it fair to, to say that the way faith healing works today is, is placebo? Or can, do you think it could be more than that? So this is a, uh, a very fascinating question. I'm really glad you asked. Um, I have for years been like, someone needs to write a book on placebos and, and priesthood blessing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, the only person I know that has like a degree in, that knows placebos <laughs> and is Mormon and knows Mormons is me. And I'm like, dang, I don't have time for another book, but <laughs> it, <laughs> it would be a fascinating book. And here's why. And, and I tell people this sometimes when I teach a class on evolution and I'm sorry if this is a little bit of a tangent, but the metaphor makes sense, which is I'll teach a class on human evolution and I'll have mm-hmm. someone leave my class and that person will say the same exact class. I'll have one student leave my class and say, you just proved that God doesn't exist. This class, just made me lose my faith in God. You just proved God doesn't exist. And they'll walk out of the room. And I'll have a student in the exact same class hearing the exact same lecture say, you just proved how genius God is. Think about it. And they'll walk me through the process of evolution and how, you know, humans are the only species to have capacity for abstract thought in regard to things like religion, right? Mm -hmm. In regards to cosmos, in regards to kind of this um, intense, you know, uh, neocortex activity and all this stuff. And so, you know, here this kid walks out from class being like, God is so smart. He uses the natural laws and principles, which is a very Mormon theological concept, right? In order to um, shape the way that our bodies have developed in order that they become able to be religious and to be, have the capacity to be like God, which is to understand the abstract. And so, you know, the two kids will walk away from one class thinking two radically different ideas. And I think that's so fascinating, right? And I feel the same way about priesthood blessings. So I could write, or, or, oh, you could argue these witch doctors I work with in Africa, right? Uh-huh. You can see the same exact proof, the same exact facts and walk away with two completely perspe- different perspectives. I could, I could show you, Hey, yeah, like there is nothing active happening in a placebo blessing there's no measurable jolt of energy or spirit that we can measure there's no i can prove to you that nothing is happening right on the one hand scientifically Mm -hmm. on the other hand i can prove to you that the priesthood blessing is one of the most effective things someone can do um for let's say a pure uh imitation placebo meaning there's no pill there's no bath there's no i mean how rare is a healing ceremony where there's literally nothing being imbibed by the patient, right? There's nothing being injected into the patient. So for something that's merely just touch, the way that the priesthood blessing occurs 
is is scientifically one of the smartest things you could do to have the largest placebo effect. So the priestess blessing does all of these things that I would argue as a placebo researcher are spot on. They're exactly what you need to do. So positive, you know, the placebo works by your faith. So that yeah. immediately induces the person getting the blessing to try to have more faith, right? Mm-hmm. That's so genius because <laughs> then if it doesn't work, it's the person's fault. They didn't have enough oh, no. faith. <laughs> and if it, if it did work, then they're great and they already are trying to make it work. So they already are. Uh, what we call it, they're, they're putting attentional focus on trying to make it work, right? Yeah. And so they're already having these positive expectations, these conditioned responses, and that the conditioned responses relate to the fact that most people getting a priesthood blessing have been in the culture for 30 odd years, right? And so they have these positive, they've heard all these stories throughout the years. It's like the priesthood blessing is like if we all were a community and there's only one medicine that was ever given called Advil. Okay, let's say that. Okay. And there's no other medicine on the planet. And we hear stories every week at church on Sunday about this Advil and how great it is and how amazing it is. And when we get sick, someone wants to offer us Advil. How high do you think my conditioned response to Advil will be at this point? Everyone from family to friends, to, you know, has told me how great it works. And so that's an enormous placebo effect right there. And so I could go off on like 10 tangents of, of different things that cause big placebo effects that the priesthood blessing has. And so that could lead people two ways. That could lead someone to say, oh, my goodness, you know, the Mormon God is so genius. Look what they came up with. Uh, look how he finds ways around and through natural law in order to heal. Or you could look at that saying, well, there's no such thing as the power of the priesthood. This is merely an example of the placebo effect being effectively mobilized. So yeah. you can look at it either way. Mm-hmm. And what yeah, would be fascinating in a study is, you know, and here's where we get into the science, the the science um, uh, of it, which I think would be fascinating. And here you see the researcher in me, which is, you know, could we do a trial where people got priesthood blessings who weren't Mormon versus those who were? And we could isolate and measure just the effect of basically tradition and culture and all the things you've accumulated over the course of your lifetime. And I would argue with with a high degree of, of, of um, confidence that Mormons would get better, would have a higher placebo rate than strangers, right? Because you have this culture of understanding what a priesthood blessing is. And so there's ways to test things like that. Um, it gets ethically problematic, just like it was in West Africa. Um, doctors in the U.S. are like, okay, well, you're arguing that priesthood blessings have placebos, or you're arguing that these witch doctors work via placebos. Okay, go test it. And I did. I took um, heart rate measures, blood pressure I took oxygenation rates, pulse, all that stuff before, during, and after ceremonies, and I found some statistically significant findings. But what we can't do, which would be great, but ethically you can't do, is I can't ask you, John, to go give a priesthood blessing and fake it. <laughs> it's not possible. Right? I can't ask you to go do that. And you have to say the exact same things, and you have to have as much emotional belief, and you have to, and and then I can tell someone to do it for real and someone to do it fake. And even then, that would be what we call a single blind, meaning only the patients or only the receivers would be blind to who's faking and who's real. And what we found is that doesn't even work because you as a doctor, if you know, or as a priesthood giver, if you know you're not, if you're, the, you're faking it, somehow through microexpression, through empathetic understanding or mirror neurons or something, patients know. So they did this fascinating study with um, dentists where they took these dentists and one of the dentists would have actual Novocaine, right, for, to, mm-hmm. numb, to numb before a surgery. 
uh, or for uh, just a basic feeling or something. I forget what the actual procedure was. And one doctor would have a placebo. And they tested people's pain rates based on whether they had the Novocaine or placebo and how high were placebo rates. What they discovered is doctors who knew they were giving the placebo, their patients had horribly high pain rates. The placebo didn't work at all um, or, or not well, right? It was very low rates. Yeah. Even though if you're watching the doctor, he does nothing different than when he's giving the real thing. So somehow he's able to communicate. However, when they ran the exact same study and they blinded the doctors and the doctors had no idea if they were giving the Novocaine or the, or the placebo, this placebo rate skyrocketed. It was still not really, really, really high, but it was still pretty high, way higher than when they believed they were giving nothing. Now, here's where it gets even more fascinating. It's when they told all the doctors that they're giving all Novocaine, even when they were giving placebo, they had way higher rates. So your belief as the healer, as the priesthood, you know, person giving the blessing affects the patient. So that's another fascinating element of the priesthood well, blessing. You know, I, I think it's, it's very interesting. And, and I know, you know, if you have faith in something, you know, you're validating that, that, that works. And at the same time, you're approaching it from a, a skeptical, um, empirical point of view. Maybe not skeptical, but definitely empirical. You're just looking, well, what happens if, what happens if? Right. You know, and to me, you know, I would probably be your student who eventually walks out of an evolution class and says, well, maybe this proves that God is such a genius. <laughs> you know, I mean, to me personally, I've looked at these things and I've gone through that conflict in my mind that what if a priesthood blessing is just, uh, you know, not what it claims to be. And going through that, that crisis of faith, you know, I've kind of started to look at some of the things that you're talking about and slowly coming to a, a feeling that, you know, even if it's easily discounted, maybe at my sophomoric level of scientific understanding, you know, there's things that happen that I don't understand. I, I, you know, it's just the complication may be high so that I can't understand it. But in a way, it, it has increased my faith and my humility to say, you know, look, you can't be so dismissive. You, you know, you have to, to some extent, go along with the flow but keep that questioning spirit. I mean, I still like to question. I would absolutely not feel bad about doing experiments with priesthood blessings, though I know most people would probably have a serious problem with that. But, right. you know, I appreciate that. And I think that's a, a good understanding to have about, you know, our, our faith traditions and the way we heal. Uh, one of the th thing I wanted to add is, that, you know, when I think back to the time that, you know, Joseph Smith was, um, alive, uh, we hadn't adopted uh, what you call the allopathic method of medicine. And right. I think there were some features of that back then. Uh, he had a very successful leg surgery. Uh, but uh, I think his brother Alvin died uh, due to, was it calomel poisoning, I think they called it, which was uh, kind of not much better than using leeches. Uh, President Washington died from the use of leeches, pre or not leeches, I'm sorry, bleeding. Right. Um, to bloodletting bloodletting with his pneumonia, and now I think about you know the use of priesthood blessing during that time, and he was also interested in herbal medicines and, and such. Right. And and I and I've heard this said by a, a, a non-Mormon doctor that to, to be among the Mormons and ill is one of the best places you could be. <laughs> oh, interesting. Back then, because we 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 kind of rejected the the damaging parts of. Um, in fact, later I'll have to maybe 
bring this book to your attention. It's basically a book on medicine in the in the in the American West. Uh, my stepdad has it, but I read through that book and read about the Mormons. And I thought that was interesting. He actually had a lot of respect for how uh, we did medicine. We kind of stepped back from you know the bloodletting and other things that weren't working at the time. So whether by design or luck, uh, it was definitely a working solution back then. Right. Um, Absolutely. So how do you see um, faith medicine and scientific medicine working together harmoniously? I would answer that question saying that I think um, they would all improve if both sides understood the other a little bit better. But not just from like um, uh, a... like, oh, I want to understand, but from a real a scientific perspective, from an empathetic view, kind of what we call in anthropology cultural relativism, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we do in anthropology is I go over there and I study witchcraft, let's say. If I'm studying witchcraft and it's part of this healing ceremony and I'm writing out this healing ceremony and why it works and what's a placebo and what's not, and in the back of my mind, I legitimately think that witchcraft is bogus and this person can't possibly be suffering from witchcraft then it's really hard for me to understand how all these rituals and rites work and how she her body is physically altered by feeling like she's being cursed, right? And it's very hard for me to actually give validation to the lived experience of the people I'm studying if from the get-go the premise of their lives I find bogus. So part of what's so hard as an anthropologist is you're forced to almost hold two worldviews at once you're, you're almost forced to hold what your worldview is, what you've been taught your whole life, what science or truth or religion. And at the same time, can you also hold this other person's worldview as just as legitimate? Can you do that? And it's very hard and it takes a long time. And can I, can I look at this instance of witchcraft and see it from their eyes and how they respond and their whole history, right? Someone from Africa might look at our, our healing blessings and be like, well, that's so silly. Mm-hmm. Right. But we might look at their idea of witchcraft and do that. So, so. And that's because we haven't had, you know, decades worth of exposure to this thing that has real effects. And so um, part of what's needed on both the scientific background, the medical establishment and on the faith community is a real understanding of the other's worldview and to hold it with respect. And that's kind of what I my mission in life is kind of to bring all these things, these people with these radically different worldviews and can you hold them at once, um, um, you know, jointly. They're not mutually exclusive. So I think that faith communities would really benefit from an, a, a deeper understanding of medicine, from a deeper understanding of how placebos work in the first place. So it's not just this like hocus pocus, wow, magical. You know, I think I tell people all the time, especially back when I was more believing and active, that I never felt compelled by the, by the poof God created Adam and Eve. Poof, they're there. Mm-hmm. This magical idea out of nothing. I was always in awe and wonderment and felt such a divine experience of curiosity in, in discovering how evolution worked and how bodies evolved and changed. And that was the God I thought was genius that could understand how a changing climate could alter, you know, the beneficial variables of traits in a society to the point where it leads to, you know, different forms through time. I mean, I just, thought that that was just so fascinating. And I feel the same way about medicine, that so many people are just okay to say, poop, it's magical, it works, and just kind of go off faith. But if someone doesn't have your faith in your community, you've lost them. They have no 
concept, no framework for understanding what you're talking about. And if you can understand the science a little bit better, it, it, it would go such a long way. So, for example, if I'm talking to a Richard Dawkins or a Bill Maher, yeah. I would do such a better job in helping them understand how someone can be so religiously committed that they would, you know, become a suicide bomb. I would go be such a better um, spokesperson just because I would talk in their language, which is like the evolutionary psychology of religion. I would go over the why our brains evolved to be religious and what group commitment means and what a costly signal means. And I would kind of help them understand that people aren't idiots. They just value their commitment and loyalty to the group of which they've had decades of proof that it's effective, that it's loyal, that it's they believe in it, that it's true through trial and error. Of course they're going to believe that. It's actually insane to think that someone wouldn't believe that that's raised in that community, right? And mm-hmm. so I would help them understand in their own words why that thing is and vice versa, right? I'd have such a better chance of talking to you know, someone that's not even someone like my parents, right? Who are enormously traditional, enormously religious and helping them understand, as I say, the science of the priesthood blessing without them being offended that I'm saying that there's no priesthood, that it doesn't work, that it's make believe by just walking them through the science and helping them understand in a very respectful way, like, wow, this is really quite complicated and fascinating. And the science doesn't invalidate your testimony, the science. And I tell people this about evolution all the time. The process is not invalidated by how you believe the purpose is. So the process yeah. of evolution works the same regardless of whether you think it's random or you think it's divinely inspired. The process of a placebo interaction during a priest of blessing, it works the same regardless of whether you think God made our brains that way and that and he knew this all along or if you think it's just like, well... Every faith community has some form of healing, and this is just our Mormon form. So it doesn't matter what you believe about it. The process works the same. If you think about witchcraft, the process of sickness and, and, and healing in regard to something that's catastrophic, as feeling like you're being cursed, works the same, regardless of whether I'm talking about bullying or witchcraft. So um, I think that it would help everyone, really, on all sides, to take the time to really understand the science and the process and to give the other side um, the benefit of doubt, like the gift. I want to give the other side the gift of mm-hmm. the idea that they've created their worldview out of a place of rationality, out of a place of, of commitment to a group, out of a place of trial and error. I wasn't Mormon, you know, because I was just naive. I prayed. I read my scriptures. I had instances over and over and over of prayer. I had a community. These are my people, right? That's yeah. why I was Mormon. It wasn't the other stuff that everyone thinks is crazy. And so to invalidate all of my religious understanding based on, hey, this one historical fact isn't accurate, just shows me, it doesn't make me feel like, oh, I'm an idiot. It doesn't make me feel like, oh, all Mormons are crazy. It makes me feel like this person clearly has no concept of what a religion really is. If, if, they, if they think that one historical fact or literal untruths can undo, you know, decades worth of sociocultural um, commitment, then they really don't understand religion. And so that's what I think when I hear, you know, Bill Maher kind of talk poorly about religious people. But I feel mm-hmm. the same way when, you know, a religious person thinks all non-believers are, you know, <laughs> out there sinners, crazy people or so, you know, something like that. So, or there's no science in religion. I just think, oh, or there's, or evolution's bad. I just think, oh, okay, well, this person clearly has no understanding of these really complicated processes. 
That's right. Yeah, I really appreciate your perspective on this, Chelsea, and I hope and pray that you'll find opportunity, you know, to help build those bridges, you know, between, you know, communities of faith and and, and science. I, I I think there's a lot of things that they can learn from each other. Um, what opportunities do you see yourself having or have had in the past uh, to help kind of build these bridges of understanding? Um. So in the past, you know, part of my journey is I was writing for Exponent on the blog. I was helping with the magazine a little bit. I helped start LDS Wave and do some advocacy efforts. I helped in the background of ordained women. Um, I'm president of Mormons for ERA. And I kind of do this advocacy activism side of my life in the sense of I don't – how do I phrase this? It's really hard for me to phrase this. And I'm going to do a TED Talk on this, actually, in the next couple of months. So I have to get it down soon. <laughs> but, it's, but it's this idea of I believe that the second you tell someone they're dumb or an idiot or their belief system is flawed, you haven't convinced them. You've merely pushed them further into their belief system. Yes. So, so I find that with, with the, the civil discourse around religion in in our nation right now. I find that people are either highly religious and think everyone else is an infidel or they're anti-religious and think anyone religious is an idiot. And so what ends up happening is we're just pushing each other further and further to extremity. And this is when we get things like ISIS. And I think that as our future um, unfolds, if we continue on this path, we're going to continue to see more and more extremist religions. And they're not going to be the majority. A lot of people will be in the middle. But the discourse will actually push people further and further away from each other instead of coming to the middle ground. And we see that. We used to think that um, in the 70s, right, we used to think, okay, you know, we now have science. Alternative medicine is going to go away and, you know, secularism is going to take over the globe. And there's going to be no religions by the 21st century. People actually argued this, right? Yes. But what we saw with anti-religious sentiment during, you know, all these communist regimes and um, all these, you know, very liberal um nation states is that their antagonism toward religion didn't make all religion go away. It just made the few people who were still religious be very extreme because you couldn't be moderately religious. Right. Yeah. And we see the same thing. That There's no extreme, middle ground. <laughs> right. And this extremity of religion pushes the secular liberals further and further away. Right. Yeah. And so this is what I see continuing this pattern continuing and, and, um, I find it very, very problematic, as I think a lot of people do, and I think it could cause so many problems in our world. So what's the solution? As an anthropologist, I'm kind of stuck because we definitely have, you know, um, an enormous ethical uh, weight on our shoulders that I'm never going to walk into a community and say, hey, you guys, you're doing it wrong. You should do it this way. That is the most ethnocentric thing a human can do. And we have a history of people doing that from, you know, colonialism on out. And I see this in the church even happening that, you know, we walk into communities and we say, hey, you're doing it different than us. You're wrong. I'm right. Do what I say. And guess what? That's not how people aren't convinced by that. People just do what they want to do anyway. And you ruin that relationship. Right. Or it becomes yeah. covert or it becomes secret. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, or it becomes more extreme. And so my kind of goal in life is to help create a civil discourse which is more respectful of religion while still holds it to ethical standards. And that's really problematic. It's really hard to figure out what that line is. And for me, what I found in my life is that I can't go over to Sudan 
and say, you know, femoral genital mutilation is terrible. You shouldn't do it. Listen to me. You should trust me. Um, I have seen this occur all mm-hmm. the time where I've lived in Africa, and it has basically 0% effectiveness. <laughs> it has very low effectiveness. And what it might do is people say, oh, it's working. It just might become more underground. And guess what happens when things like that become more underground? They use less sterile tools. They use less, you know, it becomes, it actually is worse for people. It, it becomes more extreme. And yeah, so it's like abortion I, in the same. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I learned this the hard, the hard way kind of going to other countries and trying to do good and realizing, oh man, like, and, and who am I? Who am I? Some white Mormon girl that's still in my youth when I was living over there. Who do, why would I think I know better how to heal this country or this, this situation or than someone who's lived here for 70 odd years? And how ethnocentric of me to think that. And so my anthropological experiences have really got me to focus on my home and my own culture. So I often tell I had this one humanitarian aid organization I worked with and they were doing stuff in Africa that I find very unethical. Mm-hmm. And I, the question I asked them was, would you do this to your neighbor down the street? In, in, in Linden, Utah, would you knock on your neighbor's door down the street and ask her this question? They were um, basically collecting kind of someone's child soldier or rape stories and, you know, paying them and acting like it was therapy, basically. But none of them were trained therapists. Hmm. And they were saying, oh, but we're helping people. And I just said, would you do that to your neighbor? If you knew your neighbor had been a child soldier, you knew your neighbor had been raped, would you go to her and you know she's poor and you know she needs money and say, if you tell me your story, I'm going to give you money, right? You know, that would be so unethical. And we would, mm-hmm. we would think that that's the most terrible thing. And yet we let it happen in Africa all the time in these developing countries. And so um, I, it really hit me hard that, oh, man, I even, you know, cross these ethical boundaries sometimes. And I have to really be careful. And so this is kind of um, the last decade of mine. The, well, I have to say the last five years, I've really concentrated on my own people. like. I can't tell another culture what to do. And, and But I feel like I have skin in this game. I feel like I have, these are my people. I understand them. I'm not coming in saying, I don't understand you. Do my thing. I'm saying, I understand you. I've been you. I am you. We mm-hmm. need to do better. I believe in you. I love my Mormons, you know, my Mormon people. I love my family. I love my, you know, everything about my culture. But we need to do better. We need to do better. We should not have people committing suicide because they're born gay. We should yeah. not have women struggling the way that women in this church are struggling. We should mm-hmm. not be treating people this way. We can do better. And so I, I, you know, we can have a different podcast that argues the effectiveness of the methods we've been using the last couple of years and what we'll continue to use in the next couple. But um, I feel a lot of hope that, you know, if we encourage people to make religions better, to understand them, to be cultural insiders who try to make change, it it's where real effectiveness happens. And that's where we begin to see more moderates in religions. And we begin to see more moderates that are secular liberals, right? We can yeah. actually understand religion, religion without uh, saying it, it's bad. And, and this is when we begin to see politics, hopefully, let's say, that it stops being so bipartisan. You know, where we can actually talk about abortion and we can talk about, well, how, this is something that's happening. How do we make it better? We could talk about polygamy and we could say, this is something that's happening. We could say it's idiotic or we can make it better, right? It, it, we could talk about gay marriage and we could say, we could either just close our ears and pretend it doesn't exist or we can make it better. And I think that, um, the only way to do that is if both sides are more respectful of the other side and, and see the, see the other side as legitimate. 
you know, they, they have a legitimate, you know, my parents could really see that, you know, people have a legitimate right to get married and to want that and to desire that. And for, you know, uh, uh, gay couples to feel like I have a legitimate, you know, understanding of why someone would feel, I mean, this is hard for me because I, I, I don't have a very good understanding of why anyone would fight gay marriage. So, but I, you know, you know what I'm saying though, of why someone would feel strongly about a conservative ideal that somehow yeah. seems too conservative. So if we can somehow have good dialogue, I think we wouldn't see such extremity in our politics. You know, we wouldn't see such extreme views. Mm-hmm. We could begin to discuss in ways that are healthier. Well, Chelsea Shields, I'm grateful for this opportunity to talk, and I very much enjoyed listening to your message today. And um, thank you, and thank I look you. forward to hearing uh, your TED Talk coming up Thanks. and seeing how uh, things progress with your career. Thank you. I appreciate you um, interviewing me. It's honored. Thank you. Thank you.